0: Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, David French, and Dispatch Fantasy Football Commissioner, and maybe he has something to do with the Morning Dispatch, Declan Garvey. This is going to be action-packed. The Billionaires Tax, Taiwan, Facebook, and uh, we've got an election in Virginia coming up. How are
1: we paying for it? We're not. We're not paying for it. We're not paying for anything. Um no, I mean, like when we were talking about this in the uh in our oak, red oak line planning room, uh over uh over rich uh uh brown liquors. Um I took I decided to jump on the grade and take the this new um unrealized capital gain tax thing that is a backdoor billionaire tax. Which is a backdoor wealth tax. Um, basically, I mean, it. it Here is what, what, what Ron Wyden is proposing: this massive proposal to basically tax the 700 richest people in America, and um, on not on their income, but on their unrealized capital gains, mostly essentially from from stocks. And um, the the reason why this is controversial. Well, there are a lot of reasons why it's controversial, but the the essence of it is that um, it's, some would say, unconstitutional, which we can get to in a second, but also just simply that it would be incredibly cumbersome to do, be very difficult to do. How do you fix the price? How do you um, uh, tax people on things that on a day-to-day basis, the market can change the value of, you know, is it effective? It apparently would only raise about $200 billion over 10 years. So it wouldn't cover most of this stuff. And so it feels to me politically more than policy wise, just an example of Dems in disarray that they are flailing. They're trying to come up with some sort of messaging, some sort of talking point, uh, some sort of rationale to get to yes with Kristen and some others. Um, And it's not actually a very serious policy thing. Even the head of the Ways and Means Committee says, no way, Um, this is crazy. Um, uh, We'll get to the constitutional question in a second. But Sarah, just as a political thing, do you see this as, as the way forward? Or do you see this as, you know, just more panicking inside the lifeboat?
0: I've been really interested to watch this because on the one hand, when you have 350 million people against 800 people, you'd think this would all be pretty easy, right? Like, of course, everyone's going to be for this because it doesn't affect them or anyone they know or really even what they aspire to be. Um... And yet, that's not at all what's happened. And there's something deeply American about that that uh, I think in other countries, like, yeah, yeah, let's take all their money. Hell, let's just take the houses. Um, maybe their children and cars as well. Um, and yet, there's been enormous pushback to this idea, probably because it's irrelevant, like you said, Jonah. It's just sort of this, like, sideshow Um so no, politically, it does not seem to be working, though I will say as a, as an actual, like if they did it, end goal thing. As a trial balloon to buy themselves more time as they flim-flam around and say, we'll have a deal in 30 minutes or less. And by that, I mean next month or never. Um, it has bought them time. It has like been this like, hey, squirrel. And so as a, hey, squirrel, it's been very productive.
1: Um. David, you are a longtime fan of political hay squirrel strategies that violate the constitution yeah um so a just hobby, a, really it's a hobby so and you are also you're one of these um guys who thinks that the post civil war amendments are the cat's pajamas, so you know one <laughs> of the things that um uh a lot of people who um are correct say is that uh. The Constitution is very clear. It says you can tax income, right? Right. And um, do you think that if they actually got this through in some form, do you think it would actually withstand scrutiny at the Supreme Court?
2: I, I don't think so. I mean, this is an expansion of the term income. I'm stretching the term income to a breaking point because what you're talking about is uh, fluctuating value, sort of capturing fluctuating value in a point in time. And then declaring that to be income, as opposed to the way the income is normally measured, where, where you actually realize the gain. You sell the stock and you have uh, an amount of cash, an amount of, you have something there in your hands that can be then used to purchase uh, goods, purchase more stock, et, et cetera. This is a, a measure of fluctuating, a fluctuating measure of value that is in some areas, especially outside of stock, incredibly imprecise. I mean, how are you going to evaluate, evaluate for example, paintings? Um, does an appraisal of a painting then all of a sudden mean you have higher income? Can you imagine what the some of our
1: friends at Fox would do if the IRS got into the business of appraising Hunter Biden's artwork?
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't know. Just watching those hours of primetime television alone <laughs> I know. I don't know. That, that might be the sign of the apocalypse. But no, that, it just doesn't fly conceptually. Um, hey, David, it, wait, yeah. I've
0: got a, a more far-flung constitutional objection that i are oh. going to get all sorts of mail from the listeners. But I think it's an interesting thought. What about a bill of attainder? What about this idea that we're specifically targeting individuals at a confiscatory rate that is tantamount to a non-judicial finding of some sort of, um, you know, in this case, not crime, but penalty. It's never had to be jail time or something, of course. Anyway, I do I think it's actually a bill of attainder? No. But. Woo!
1: If they come up with a Jeff Bezos tax, it would be, right?
0: Yes. Right. Yes. Right. If it were... If they like literally named the people it absolutely would be um now there's plenty of constitutional law examples where they don't name the people, but like if you're a member of the n r l b you have to take a pledge that you're not a communist, so there's things like that
2: yeah i th- I think that's an interesting concept that they would never get to because they have the easier <laughs> yeah they'd have the Fine. easier way of ruling
0: you're no fun. but you know
2: what one of the it sort of gets at one of the ways that we that bothers me about the way we talk about some of these guys and their wealth is that I think we often create the impression in the way, in the way that we talk about this, that Elon Musk is sitting on a giant pile of say $200 billion in cash. And what he's sitting on is a whole bunch of say Tesla stock. And so we'll have these fluctuating battles over who's the world's wealthiest man. And it's just, based on sort of the ins and outs of what, what's happened to Microsoft stock today, what's happened to Tesla stock today, and you have a stock crash, and all of a sudden Elon Musk loses, say, $50 billion. Well, you know, th- that will climb back over three to four weeks. because, And I think that just illustrates all of this is, um, yeah, it's tangible in any given moment, but it's ephemeral over time until it's realized. And then, heck yeah, tax it tax it at an appropriate rate. Right. I mean, so,
1: I mean, you raise one of the great problems with it is that what happens if, if he's pay, if, if Elon Musk pays the taxes at a certain stock price and then the stock price goes down, does he get a refund from the federal government? Um, just the implementation stuff on this is very, very complicated. Declan, I know you are a frequent victim of the alternative minimum tax. Um, (laughs) uh, but, um, uh, you know, just sort of politically where, you know, why, why is this, where do you see this playing into what the, the, the story of the day is, you know, Sarah's saying it's a look squirrel operation. Um, is the, is the effort to pay for it without, uh, affecting the debt really? I mean, it, it seems to me, I'm sorry, I'm tongue tied. Um, it seems to me that, it's a weird case of debt obsession with the dem- de- deficit spending with the Democrats that is driving this sort of back assward word um, approach to how to get this thing done. What do you make of it? Right? No, I, part of me wonders,
3: would the Democrats just be better off scrapping this all together and saying it's going to, we're going to add $200 billion to the deficit instead of doing this because it's, you know, it's, it's that insane of a, of a proposal. Um, you know, obviously we we've struggled a little bit with how much to even cover it in the morning dispatch, because it's pretty clearly out there, pretty clearly insane. I think it's, you know, just as much of a legislation as press release messaging bill as say something like, you know, Josh Hawley's love America act, which if you aren't following requires at the federal level to dictate what age various students across the country have to have parts of our founding documents memorized. Um, I think that's about kind of on par with the level of seriousness that uh, that we're working with here. But at the same time, you know, it's from Ron Wyden. He's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, and this is something that um, is being seriously proposed and debated. Now, ultimately, I don't think that it's going anywhere. One, King Manchin, uh isn't on board with it. And so with 50 votes in the Senate needed, that's, you know, an important point. He actually had a really funny quote yesterday. He was talking at uh, one of these think tanks here in D.C. and he was asked about this proposal. He said, uh, I told Joe Biden, I don't know what happened. This cannot happen. It's really screwed up. Uh, and and uh, that apparently by Manchin's retelling Biden's with him on that, he agrees with. Um, and then also, you know, the unconstitutional points that David mentioned. I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it really gives off unconstitutional vibes, um, <laughs> I, I would say. I just just reading about it. Um, and it's and it's interesting, Jonah, to, to your question, you know, it, it, the Democrats first instinct on this is instead of, you know, maybe scaling back this proposal and and this reconciliation bill by, you know, a couple hundred um, billion dollars, they are they're jumping to this instead. You know, maybe if you're having to resort to something as unfeasible and and uh, crazy as this, your bill is too big and and you can't find ways to, to finance it. You know, it, it, it uh, is fun thought exercise, but I don't think it's much more than that.
1: Yeah, just very quickly on this, because normally I'd be like Mr. It's unconstitutional end of discussion guy. And I think it is probably unconstitutional and that should be the end of the discussion. But the thing that bothers me more about it is the just, and this is why I mentioned the alternative minimum tax, the alternative minimum tax came about in the 1970s, right? And it was supposed to cover a tiny fraction of a handful of a handful of people who, because of special loopholes and write-offs and whatever, weren't paying enough in income taxes, Um, like literally dozens of people it was supposed to cover. Now it covers over 5 million people. And I think that one of the things that people see in this is the potential for mission creep where all of a sudden you can tax pe- the value of people's homes in new ways. You can tax the people of other a- tax, tax other assets and the idea that it'll just stick with billionaires is crazy. But the thing that bothers me the most about it is the unintended consequences aspect of if, if you chase the richest people in the society out of very transparent wealth accumulation in the form of stocks and bonds, and into harder to uh, understand stuff like um art baseball cards you know land i mean you can get into all sorts of things if you chase all these people because they don't want to be uh, they want to get hit by this tax um what does that do to the market what does that do to people's 401k's what does that do to the capital structure i mean there are all sorts of things that i just don't think wyden has given two seconds of thought to i mean Declan, you're about to say something uh, yeah i
3: i think the the genesis of this proposal was basically this. I mean, there's been years of uh, demonization of the ultra wealthy brewing on on both sides of the political aisle. To be fair, but you know, dating back to Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016, and and I think the 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 seed for this idea came from there's basically uh, a reality where you know these ultra ultra rich people aren't necessarily making a ton of income and they're able to accumulate massive amounts of wealth and then they borrow uh through through stocks and and bonds and whatnot and then they're able to borrow against that wealth to finance their day-to-day living and that's something that uh from the democratic perspective it's just kind of this feels wrong it feels like this shouldn't be right so let's come up with a you know hard scribble way to to
2: eliminate it and and that's this is the result of of that yeah, I feel like I need to disclose a conflict of interest here because I really want to get to Mars. I really want to get to Mars. <laughs> yeah, and the win- yeah. the window is closing. And if you're taking $50 billion from Elon Musk in any given moment, I don't see how I'm getting there. So...
0: Yeah, to be clear, listeners, he doesn't mean when he says, I want to get to Mars, he doesn't mean like, I as an American, want to get to Mars. He means David French wants to be on the ship that goes to Mars.
2: Yes, yes. I want to be the embedded journalist that heads to Mars. And We're doing AO from
0: Mars now. Great.
2: Yeah. No. What about your
3: other conflict of interest, David? Your John Morant basketball card collection puts you in this billionaire status, right? (laughs) That is
2: true. That is true. So I have a lot invested in this aside from the terrible, poor merits of the proposal.
0: thousand dollars or ten million they can help you whether it's business or personal taxes even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch all right declan it's taiwan time
3: yes so um as an avid listener of this podcast usually i know you guys devoted a lot of time to uh, China and its hypersonic missile test last week. Um, and then a day after that conversation aired on Thursday night, uh, President Biden was asked in a CNN town hall uh, about the United States's relationship with Taiwan. Um, I'll pull up the exact wording here. Anderson Cooper said, are you saying that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked? And Biden answered in the affirmative saying, yes, we have a commitment to do that. Um, Now, in in today's kind of more hostile political climate vis-a-vis China, that statement might not sound all that shocking, but it actually represented a kind of major break from 40 years of the United States' strategic ambiguity policy towards Taiwan, which essentially dictates that although we supply Taiwan with uh, arms to help its self-defense, we are kind of more purposely vague about what actions by China would trigger the United States itself to get involved kind of militarily. Um, And so the White House walked back Biden's statement the next morning saying essentially nothing had changed, but it was actually the second time that this had happened with Biden over a three month span. He said something similar in August in an ABC news interview, White House walked it back then as well. Um, And then we get the response from China the next day, which was like, (laughs) crazy aggressive um, as as their want to do. They had the kind of typical stuff of, you know, uh, the U.S. needs to abide by the one China policy, et cetera. And then they had this line in there that was, quote, do not stand on the opposite side of 1.4 billion people, uh, which is an incredibly ominous sounding thing. Uh, But I'll pause there. David, you praised Biden's comments on Thursday before the White House walked them back. Uh, two-part question: Do you think that this kind of two-step, which has happened now twice in in the past couple months, is intentional, um, or has Biden just been misspeaking? And then, second question: If it is intentional, do you think that strategic
2: ambiguity has outlived its usefulness? I have no idea if it's intentional. Like, <laughs> I have no idea at all. I think intentional or not, it's good because there's sort of a strong ambiguity or a weak ambiguity. And I prefer the stronger version of it. Uh, the one where the White House is sort of saying, wait a minute there, big fella. I know you're chomping at the bit, you know, to, to make a strong stand for Taiwan. I think the timing of some of this is good. You know, we've had major increase in Chinese overflights of Taiwanese airspace, uh, sometimes dozens of planes at a time. Um, an increased sort of sense of alarm amongst amongst defense planners that conflict with China may arise uh, at some point in the relatively near future. Um, Some thoughts that China would be, quote-unquote, ready to invade Taiwan by 2025. So I think pushing that ambiguity towards just a bit more sharpness is a good thing. Uh, What I was having a really interesting conversation uh, about a week or so ago, uh, with someone in the Pentagon, and and they were reminding me uh, that a lot of this is kind is still very ethereal and sort of in the atmosphere. Because the reality is, is if China was going to attack Taiwan, it would be very difficult to disguise the buildup and the preparations for such an event. You would see it on satellites. You would see this thing emerging because Taiwan is, quote, a tough nut to crack. There there are things about the geography of the island, the defenses of the island, the difficulty of amphibious invasions, that it would be very difficult to do this. And so what would happen in a real-world situation, according to this sort of this theorizing, is that you would begin to see an emerging buildup of large-scale proportions, which would then put the ball in our court and... You would then the ambiguity have to, you could still maintain ambiguity, but there would be soft ambiguity or strong ambiguity. And the strong ambiguity would be we build up, we build up. And that's probably what would be more likely to happen and would deter any kind of invasion. And I, I actually found that somewhat reassuring the sort of reminder that we're still in a, 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 a remote hypo land and we don't actually have the signs. Of China actually doing the kinds of things that would prepare for an attack, uh, time you know there's no sign that anything like that is imminent, uh, and that's when uh, it would get very real, very fast, and this ambiguity would have to clear up very quickly. But if we're going to have ambiguity about our ambiguity, uh, I like the direction Biden is heading towards making it less ambiguous and more strong.
3: No, that's a, and that's especially a good point about Taiwan being a tough nut to crack uh, in in terms of, you know, they'd have to signal this. I was actually, right before we published their, uh, the Center for New American Security, a, a bipartisan think tank here, issued a report outlining a war game that some of their their staffers did. And they actually presented the, uh, the idea that instead of going directly to Taiwan, uh, China would start out by uh, trying to kind of take control militarily of Dongsha, which is a, a smaller island in between uh, the in in the South China Sea, and and start there and kind of see how people respond to that first. Um, so it, it'll definitely be an interesting way to, I mean,
2: interesting and scary to to see how if and how this all plays out. I don't think we'd retake Dongsha, but I think you would see a massive military buildup on Taiwan proper. Uh, and and you might actually see because of the superiority of that, for example, the Taiwanese Air Force overall. You would see China taking very significant losses that it didn't necessarily want to take. But that's that's all rank speculation, which we don't. I like. I cannot believe <laughs> that David French just <laughs> threw
1: Dongsha under the bus. I mean, <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, if Declan, he hasn't
1: been canceled yet,
0: <laughs> can I use my time to ask Jonah a question? Sure. Okay, Jonah, I saw this thing from the common good conservatives, the people who were like, let's all move to Hungary. China's actually good. And it said, imagine after the Civil War, the Confederates were in uh, Puerto Rico, and China said that we weren't allowed to retake Puerto Rico, and we had to just let the Confederate government and military and people hang out living their best lives in Puerto Rico. How would we feel then? Um, and I just thought it'd be really funny to hear your response.
2: <laughs> I love that, Sarah.
1: Okay. Um, um, this is the same same crowd that includes people who are against artificial light. Um, but um, uh, I'm against
0: artificial light at night because our migratory birds are having so many problems, but perhaps that's not why they're against it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm talking about like light bulbs, like moving on from the candle. <laughs> um, that, that's like a thing. The life expectancy is too damn. That high. is actually, a, if you <laughs> yeah. think Jonah's joking? That is
2: a thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I just read this piece about how everyone was better off 800 years ago as serfs. Um, from some. Of the I people. like so, my anyway.
0: antibiotics
1: and and dentistry and there's lots of things to like about like. I
0: progress. had a C-section, anyway. you know. Yeah,
1: you, know, you could have a C-section 800 years ago. You just couldn't survive it. <laughs> um, so you know, trade-offs, trade-offs. <laughs> anyway, so. Um, uh, I mean, it is named after Caesar, right? So, I mean, they've been doing them for a while. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, where to begin? It's a really dumb point, right? And so, the and I, I, to take it seriously for just two seconds, which I'm, I'm at pains to do, um, the the fundamental moral vision underlying those kinds of comments sees all the players on the international chessboard as morally indistinguishable from one another, right? That there is no moral hierarchy to different systems of government. There is no, except, except unless they're in charge of them. Right. But in this sort of cold real politic understanding of things, um, the, the winners of the Chinese civil war, AKA the Han Chinese and the Chinese communist party, they have every right to be pissed about Taiwan the fundamental idealistic principle of the United States for quite a while has been at least among people who I think, um, have the better argument is that we are on the side of democratic countries. Um, that doesn't mean we will go to fight and die for every democratic country under threat everywhere and anywhere at any time without due consideration, but rhetorically, philosophically, financially, if necessary, if it's a contest between an authoritarian and a democratic liberal society, we take their side and not just because um, they're more likely to be our political allies, but because they are in fact morally superior systems. And the problem with this analogy is um, that it, it throws all that by the wayside and to say, well, the Chinese won, therefore they should get to do whatever the hell they want rather than pay any attention. You know, it's sort of like the famous William F. Buckley um, quip, which I quote all the time, where he says, where he's talking about the the moral equivalence that the Democratic Party played about the Soviet Union and the United States. And he said, look, if you have one person who shoves old ladies in front of buses and you have one person who shoves old ladies out of the way of oncoming buses, it will not do to say they're both the ki- types of men who push old ladies around. <laughs> and um the moral (laughs) equivalence between taiwan and china is wrong and grotesque and it's sort of an intellectual stolen base to pretend otherwise
0: no it's 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 more you know the confederacy wins the war and we're all on puerto rico which you know i've been to puerto rico quite lovely highly recommend
1: (laughs) in the right seasons
0: yeah (laughs) uh all right declan you want to finish us off or should we move on
3: yeah. Um, so I, I had one more question for, for you, Jonah. So kicking it right back in, in, uh, in your court. But, um, you know, specifically with Congress's role in all of this, um, these, you know, these decades of strategic ambiguity uh, kind of posturing date back to the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, which was essentially Jimmy Carter unilaterally decided to annul a mutual defense treaty with what we now consider to be Taiwan in order to establish diplomatic relations with the chinese communist party um and members of congress got really really mad about that uh that they weren't consulted this is something that that needs to um exist and to that point that you were making about taiwan being democratic there was a lot of um lobbying and pushing going on and so you know there wasn't cable news at the time so legislators actually passed a law instead and uh and kind of roped in what the administration is able to do with respect to Taiwan, um, including, you know, requirements that it supply arms of a defensive nature and, uh, quote, maintaining the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize Taiwan's security. Um, My question to you is, should more of our foreign policy be dictated that way? Should Congress have a more active role in kind of how we treat our relationships with different
1: countries? Um, in a nutshell, yes. But, um, but based, based, uh, baked into the que- the assumptions of the question is an idea that is the idea that Congress as it exists, as is constituted today would take its job seriously in that regard. And, so I, I'm a little more reluctant to see Congress get heavily involved in foreign policy right now when it is such um a circus and such a ridiculous institution that doesn't take its responsibility seriously. But the first step towards taking responsibility seriously is taking responsibility seriously. And so, you know, I I, I would like to see them take some baby steps before they start doing all this. But you gotta remember if, the Founding Fathers envisioned a very strong and robust role for Congress and foreign policy. It's Congress that declares war, not the president. You know, it's Congress has to approve all those ambassadors. Um, it has to allocate the monies for all of this kind of stuff. And the power of the purse was seen as part of this whole, you know, things. They're the and, and, it, and Congress should rightly be the, the body of government most concerned with maintaining our alliances and in support with other democratic countries because it is the most democratic branch of government, but it's also a hot mess. And, uh, you know, the idea that it's going to take all the, do the right thing anytime soon. I'd like to see it, but I'm just not super hopeful.
0: All right. Next up, David, uh, is Facebook, the Pentagon papers?
2: Oh my gosh. no, <laughs> All right. So anyway, I'm, I'm fascinated by this Facebook document dump story and, and, uh, we'll put in the show notes. show show notes. We'll put in the show notes, we'll put in the show notes, a really good sort of wall street journal site that they've created that, um, that puts together sort of all of the various scandalous aspects, allegedly scandalous, allegedly scandalous aspects of the Facebook document dump. And, but there's one that I really want to highlight that, and I, I want to go to you with this, um, Sarah. And it's a story that I think just encapsulates a lot of my objections about objections to Facebook, and there are things I object to about Facebook, but this encapsulates my objections about objections to Facebook. Oh God, I, this is like the anti
0: anti vax thing, and I just have trouble correct. following the linguistics. I know, but okay. I know, but okay, it'll okay, be try.
2: it'll be clear. It'll be clear. Okay. All right. So th- this is two two quick paragraphs. In the fall of 2018, Jonah Peretti, chief executive of online publisher BuzzFeed, emailed a top official at Facebook Inc. The most divisive content that publishers produce was going viral on the platform, he said. Oh, that's a, wow. Okay, that's a fair critique. He pointed to the success of a BuzzFeed post. Okay, so this (laughs) is the CEO of online publisher BuzzFeed pointed to the success of a BuzzFeed post titled 21 Things That Almost All White People Are Guilty of Saying, which received 13,000 shares and 16,000 comments on Facebook, many from people criticizing BuzzFeed for writing it, you think? And arguing with each other about race. Other content the company produced, from news videos to articles on self-care and animals, had trouble breaking through, he said. So-
0: But the cat memes!
2: Okay, now two (laughs) things about this. One, if you're having trouble, if your cat content is having trouble breaking through, that's on you, okay? That's, That's your content problem. The other thing is, This just encapsulates so much of what I feel about when I read these social media are destroying us articles. It's people telling social media to stop making me so bad (laughs) because this is BuzzFeed saying, how dare the article that BuzzFeed produced go so viral. This is one of my fundamental critiques, Sarah, about the complaints about social media. And tell me, please, why I'm wrong.
0: Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. You're wrong. No. You're wrong.
1: <laughs> Gosh. can't believe they cut that from the sound of
2: music. <laughs> I found that unpersuasive, but continue.
0: So this actually goes to a fundamental disagreement that you and I have, David, and I am so excited we get to continue it here today. You remember back when we, I was comparing Social media companies to the tobacco litigation. Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation about, um, well, it's not addictive. And I perhaps <laughs> pounced on you like my cat on a, well, actually, my cats don't pounce on anything, frankly. They're pretty lazy and are scared of most things. Uh, but if they weren't, um, because I think it is incredibly addictive, they know it's addictive. And they do not tell their consumers how much they know about how addictive it is. Similar problem here, David. You're assuming that we're the problem because all things are equal on the platform. All things are not equal on the platform. The algorithm prioritizes and preferences certain things And it is preferencing the most divisive things intentionally because Mm. anger is what keeps people on the platform, makes it more addictive. The more emotional they can make people feel, the more it draws them in and they have a harder time uh, turning off the app, putting down their phone. They know this and therefore, that is why you're very, very wrong.
2: Okay, so, all right. Well, this is not gonna be a debate between me and Sarah. We'll continue this, Sarah. Oh, yes, we will. Um, But one of my objections is with the word addiction. Okay, the word addiction is a word that has a meaning, and it is not things I like to do. It's not even. It's not even habits.
0: I agree with that, and so I I do not believe it is addictive.
2: Uh, I strongly disagree with the addiction point, but one of the one especially of the especially for
0: adolescent brains who don't right, have the Declan, frontal lobe uh, control that you have, David
2: Declan, let's not there's let's no one else on this, this
0: podcast, it's just me. Look,
2: I'm appealing, <laughs> I'm appealing I pay for this microphone, Mr. Green. <laughs> I'm appealing to my uh, our fantasy football commissioner to assist in yes. adjudicating this because one of the interesting reveals here was that in 2018, Facebook actually tried to make the, the platform kinder and gentler. It tried to prioritize and tweak the algorithm towards more family-focused content and whatnot. And you know what happened, Declan? What happened, David? I'll tell you what happened, Declan. People like that darn BuzzFeed guy who's demanding that Facebook save America from BuzzFeed just pushed right on through with their own divisive and hateful content. And so could you explain to the people why Sarah is wrong and I'm correct? And the fundamental problem of Facebook is that is us, is us because what is happening is we're platforming people and people have a lot of problems in the way they that in and anger and what when, when you're platforming people you're going to get a closer look at who people are and sometimes it's not Great.
0: See, I'm not even going to set Declan up by that because I trust him to do the right thing here and, <laughs> and defend his generation's health and well-being.
3: Yes, uh, two things. I think you are correct, David, that... Oh, boy. Thank you. Uh, that's it, Jonah. <laughs> um. I, you, you are correct, David, in that human beings are the problem with a large portion of Facebook. But at the same time, human beings are a problem in a whole lot of other areas. And we legislate against that or create rules to, you know, human beings in a natural state murder people. And we have created laws to
2: curb that instinct and curb that. And so are you messing with my First Amendment? Are you about to mess with my First Amendment? No, I'm not messing with your First Amendment. Go ahead. No, I feel
0: like Declan, I think. Declan's parents are married, but this sounds like a kid who's very used to pleasing both mom and dad.
1: Yeah, this is strong. Why do you guys have to fight around me?
3: Uh, <laughs> I'm, I am. You will never meet someone more conflict averse than me. <laughs> it, it took me three years to build up the confidence to say something to a friend once. But I, it, to, to that point, I, I was don't it, think I don't that like it's, those
1: shoes. I mean, was it something totally like anonymous? <laughs>
3: I, I will never tell someone they don't like their shoes. It, it just <laughs> won't happen. But what I'm saying is there are ways, I, I guess the, the question ultimately comes down to, you know, we, we've seen the Facebook files. Now, what do we do about them? And so if there is an instinct to do something about them, then there I, I think there is an argument that can be made that, um, that that these platforms are addictive. You know, we wrote about it in the morning dispatch a couple of weeks ago and um talked to a couple of psychologists, child psychiatrists, and there is, you know, there's a growing body of evidence, not necessarily that, uh, they're addictive in the same way that, uh, you know, tobacco and, and alcohol or other substances could be, but that there are real issues in terms of, um, you know, sleep habits, how it affects, and, and this is a broader problem with phones in general. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I wasn't more than five feet away from my phone, honestly. Uh, You know, it's just kind of become a part of who we are. It's uh, everybody's first instinct is just to pull it out when you're not doing anything. Um, But at the same time, you know, I I think there are concrete reforms that Facebook and Twitter could take. I mean, remember when Facebook and Twitter first were released and the the timelines, so to speak, were just chronological instead of the you know, we talk a lot about tweaking the algorithm, this tweaking the algorithm, that why not just go back to chronological and the the answer is because that is how the company is are able to kind of rope you in, keep you going longer. It surfaces posts that they think either one will keep you on the platform longer and uh, and uh, cause you to engage with things, get you angry, get you riled up, or two will surface things that are just the most likely to stick in your brain. And 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 what is what is that kind of content? It's intentionally inflammatory. It's you know full of uh, half-truths and lies and whatnot. And so I, mean, I, I would be interested to see what research the companies have about that switch. Obviously, it's made them tons of money and, and you know, their advertising uh, budgets have, have expanded exponentially since they made that switch. But what would, you know, how much would they lose if they go back to that chronological timeline where you're not, you know, the no free speech invasions, David, I promise I won't go there. But um, you know, you're not really losing anything other than
0: the addiction surfacing.
1: <laughs> Yes, I, 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 can I jump in here at some point?
0: No,
2: <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to set you up, Jonah. No,
0: David, you need to ta- keep setting no, people up. No, this is
2: my conversation, Sarah. I'm <laughs> it's gonna my podcast. I'm going to set you, set you <laughs> you're up. You're the Jonah, governor, by, but
0: I'm the president.
2: <laughs> I'm going to set you up, Jonah, by attacking. And it's my Declan. fantasy football league. <laughs> I, I'm just hanging out. One is, uh, w- uh, yes, absolutely say Jonah stuff. Number two, <laughs> I'm, getting a, I'm getting a strong vibe from Declan that is akin to something like, wouldn't television be better if it was still in these big table, coffee table-sized black and white sets with Leave It to Beaver content? The You have a new technology you improve the technology in ways that people prefer over the early iter- earlier iterations of the communicative technology. I'm hearing is Declan saying, leave it to Beaver, yes. Season six of The Expanse, no, is kind of my <laughs> interpretation of this. Um, tell me I'm wrong.
1: Okay, so uh, I'm not going to wade too deep into uh, Declan's ludism because one of the problems <laughs> is we now know is he can't defend himself. So... Um, <laughs> But I, I, am I'm I'm torn on this. Like, I, I, let me, I think the comparison to nicotine is wrong for the reasons David is right in that nicotine is legitimately chemically addictive. But as I've argued for years, marijuana is not chemically addictive. It is psychologically addictive. I know too many people who fell into using weed as a psychological crutch, um, and, uh, they didn't you know they wouldn't go into withdrawal or have the dts if they didn't have you know if they didn't smoke pot every day, but they just psychologically couldn't handle life without it and I think there is something better in that analogy to it. I'd like to take a step back and return to my quasi almost maybe sort of half conspiracy theory because right now, like every day, I see these ads I just pointed them out to my wife who finally came back um home uh, from a business trip and Every day, there, I see these Facebook ads, which are shot as if there are these, they're in, almost like in a therapist's office, a really nice therapist, an expensive therapist's office. And these people are being interviewed. And one after another, they're all Facebook executives. And their jobs are to be like, there's one with an African American lady who says, My job is to protect your privacy because privacy. Blah 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 cliche cliche cliche, and then there's another one who's you know does something else, and they all end with a passionate appeal for Congress to regulate Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, so much of this controversy, it feels very. Um, I'm not saying that Facebook. I'm not saying that Facebook orchestrated it to go this way because some of these stories you wouldn't want come out about your corporation and you wouldn't want to arouse this much anger but at the same time um there's this weird disconnect where like everybody wants to regulate Facebook except for like me and David French um, the Republicans want to, the Democrats <laughs> wants to Facebook wants to, and, and Charlie Cook. Okay. So there are three of us and, um, and, and yet no one can pull it off in part because the Democrats want to regulate it crazy one way and Republicans want to regulate it crazy another way. And they're not reconcilable with each other. And so once again, the great advantage of stalemate and deadlock. Is the status quo, because the status quo is better than what any of these um, guys who belong in the show nuts um, would come up?
0: (laughs) Okay. This conversation may continue after the pod, I'll just tell (laughs) y'all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. We've got an election in less than a week. Uh, look, this this podcast is not a future predicting podcast. Plenty of people can make up their own mind about what's going to happen in Virginia. Of course, I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, but I want to give you are, just some... Yeah. Are you,
1: though? Are you actually curious what we think?
0: <laughs> not that curious. Jonah, you don't even vote in this state. You're in Maryland. I'm in D.C., Oh, God.
1: I I can't tell you how many times we've had this conversation. (laughs) It's just amazing. (laughs)
0: Uh, I keep hoping you're in Maryland, I guess. Um, All right. Some fast facts. We have early vote numbers. So 2017 was our last gubernatorial race in Virginia. In 2017, about 190,000 people had voted early by this point. As of right now, we're well over 600,000. Now, based on some voter modeling that I generally trust, the percentage of Democrats who have cast their ballot in that 600,000 is significantly higher than 2017. In 2017, there was about a five percent gap by this point. And remember, the Democrat won by a lot in 2017. Uh, And as of now, it's like a 24-point gap. Um, There's, you know, the share of white voters has decreased based on 2017 and that number. Um, And yet, people still think that Glenn Youngkin uh, may well pull this thing out. I guess my question to you, Declan, is why do we care about Virginia? Like, is this just something that we care about because, A, we live near D.C., and, B, we don't have any other elections to talk about, and it's like a little bonus Christmas day where your parents have to give you presents because it's your half-birthday or something?
3: I loved the analogy that Chris Steierwald our colleague put forth in the sweep yesterday um about how at the beginning of the pandemic major league baseball shut down and the korean baseball league because south korea had the pandemic more under control stayed open and was playing games and all of a sudden there were you know i don't know what the actual number is probably not that many because baseball's uh becoming more and more niche or niche depending on how you want to pronounce that um but there were lots more people watching Korean baseball than ever before because it was the only thing on. That's what's happening with Virginia. Um, it's the, you know, there is the New Jersey gubernatorial race happening. There's a couple house special elections, but um, rank punditry needs to satisfy its itch. And this is the only way to do that uh, at, at, at this point. And so everybody in D.C. and all the you know cable news hosts in New York are going to spin their wheels and draw really, really, really dramatic conclusions from this race, which is going to, I mean, in all likelihood going to be decided between, you know, what, three and four percentage points one way or the other. Um, and that will dictate who's going to take the House in 22, which Republican's going to be the nominee in 24, and who's going to take the White House that year. Um, and so it's, that's sarcasm if, if that hasn't come through. Um, <laughs> so uh it it is i think a little bit too much emphasis just because it's the only the only thing going on uh that being said you know it it will dictate how the parties respond uh in in the year leading up to the midterms to based on this outcome so it'll be interesting to see um you know if if it's a narrow mcauliffe win you know i think you've mentioned in the sweep you can spin every single outcome every single way uh and people should go (laughs) back and and read that but you know it could be Biden's uh, moderate style and and tone and nominating a 63 year old white man in Terry McAuliffe is great strategy and Democrats need to emulate it or Terry McAuliffe should have won by way more. We need to nominate a far more progressive, younger, more dynamic. And and so we'll we'll get all versions of that. It'll be the multiverse of
1: rank punditry takes um, in, in the days following.
0: Jonah, tell him why he's wrong.
1: Okay, so I'm actually very sympathetic to this position. I actually, this is my premise of my question to you. Then never
0: mind, No, 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 no,
1: I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back. This was the premise of my question to you the last time we talked about this was that, okay, it's in the media market next to D.C., so of course D.C. people freak out about it. And I'm very sympathetic to that as a general proposition. Here's why I think that explanation is insufficient. Um, First of all, um, Yunkin has figured out a way to not piss off Trump world while also reaching out to non-Trumpy voters. That is significant in and of itself going forward as a matter of just punditry and politics in America. Um, uh, McAuliffe came in thinking that he could just run a anti-Trump thing and run away with it. And it turns out that didn't work. I think also among the most inter- there are two other points I make. The most interesting development, I would argue, is that for the first time in our lifetimes, the normal democratic playbook of I'm pro-teacher, I love teachers, schools are awesome, yay, yay schools, let's spend more money on them, isn't working because the cultural climate right now is after 18 months of people being really pissed off at the schools because of how they handled COVID, add in CRT, all of these other issues, these, these culture war, anti-racism kind of things, wherever you come down on it, there is a sense in which a lot of suburban parents feel like, um, they are, um, being denied agency and influence in how their kids are being raised and they didn't mind it before, but now they're basically being told things, their, their kids are being told things that they find really objectionable. And Terry McAuliffe, despite, and and this brings me to the last point, Terry McAuliffe is part of the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. He was an old Bill Clinton hack who raised a lot of money for him. And for some reason, he has absolutely lost any ability to read the facts on the ground and and pivot and triangulate in the way that a Clintonian would um, to, to just simply read the zeitgeist. And instead, he doubles down on sort of being a creature of the teachers' unions and the political machinery, and it might be good enough to carry them over the top, but if it's even close, that sends a scary signal to a lot of Democrats that you can't ride on Biden's coattails, you can't ride on the usual school's stuff, um, and you actually need to deal with where voters are even if you think it's illegitimate, and you can't just do what Barack Obama did this week and say, oh, these are all just fake culture war um, you know, boogeyman or whatever the phrase was, um, even though some of them are, if the people believe, if the parents believe that they're real and they, I think they have good reason to believe that some of them are very much real, um, you got to deal with that. And Bill Clinton was a master of dealing with that. Terry McAuliffe has just gone native with the, with the sort of the hackish, you know, education guild of the Democratic Party and it could cost them the election and that will send a terrifying signal to a lot of
0: Democrats. So David... Here's why I think Declan is wrong. Because this is not the usual Virginia off-cycle race. Terry McAuliffe was way ahead in July. And then in August, a bunch of stuff happened. Biden's approval numbers tanked. Afghanistan, COVID, um, etc. Then the race tightens. Terry McAuliffe gives his, uh, you know the worst debate line ever. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. His numbers bottom out with women. Now, here's where I'm annoyed with the punditry because I think that people actually will care whether Terry McAuliffe wins or loses this race when, in fact, it's over. In terms of what we're going to learn about 2022, we already know it. This race shouldn't be tight. Joe Biden won the state by double digits in 2020. That was a year ago. Um, The the reason then, whether he's lost nine points or 11 points in the state is, you know, it will determine who's the next governor of Virginia, I grant you, but it's not particularly relevant to 2022 or what's happening with Democratic Party vis-a-vis their own voters. Because what's interesting to me is if you look at um, those early voting numbers, what's quite clear is that we don't have new people voting. And so to the extent this race is tight and or Glenn Youngkin even wins it, it's because Biden voters voted for Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. Um, So please just go ahead and tell Declan why he's wrong.
2: Okay. Um, Well, I'm not going to be so mean to Declan because I interpreted all his comments earlier as I'm right about social media. but. Um, You
0: just want to get favor from the commissioner. And I find that unacceptable (laughs) despite my thumping by you this week.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And here's, there's a couple of things that I think are salient about this. One is because all of our races are to some extent nationalized now, Um, not completely nationalized, but to some extent nationalized, what they, what the tightening of this race illustrates is that, as you know, I've been arguing for a while, Biden doesn't have that kind of fo- the following. I will, you know, the ride or die following that Donald Trump had. What his his approval rating is dependent upon performance in a degree to a degree that Donald Trump's wasn't, and so he's had a really bad few months, a really bad few months. So it's not surprising in a nationalized environment that uh, that would start to, that would be reflected in the polling in this race. And then number two, what's really interesting to me, and this is going all the way back to uh, a lot of advisory opinions podcasts that we had during the run up to the election. And that is, you know, you know, there's an urban base uh, for the Democrats, you know, that there's a rural base for the Republicans, but there's this educated suburb world, which depending on where it is, is going to lean Democratic or is going to lean Republican. But if the Democrats can really capture and hold that educated suburban world that really gave them the election in 2020, that's going to adjust our politics a lot. And I think what Jonah said about teachers' unions Um, and and public education, there's a lot to that. And, And I think that what the Democrats are dealing with is a bit of a perfect storm here because if you'd had some of the CRT debates or some of the debates over scandals in individual school districts that you have now, it wouldn't have landed in the same way if we weren't just coming through 18 months where after, you know, about a two to three or four month grace period when everyone didn't know what coronavirus would do and how it would impact kids and how it would impact schools, people began to learn that, wait a minute, you can have school. You know, this is something that you can do. And then there was an enormous amount of resistance to that, just an enormous amount of resistance. And I think what you ended up doing was for a lot of parents, the teachers' unions squandered an argument that they'd been making for years that people listen to, which is we're really in it for the kids. That was sort of the teacher's union position. And the reality became we're in it for our union members. That became the reality uh, that emerged. And, and then I think that set the stage for a much more skeptical view towards public education, a much more welcoming view towards alternatives to public education. And then when, Ter- when McAuliffe comes in and he puts the cherry on top of all of that, just this perfect cherry, which is, you know, we're not leaving this to the parents. Um, that's, that's, you know, not the, the exact quote I believe is, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. You, just, you don't have it memorized, David? It's th- I'm every reading. commercial I know, and every I know. football I'm in, game. <laughs> I'm in Tennessee. I'm in Tennessee. I'm reading it now. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they teach. That's the cherry on top of a Sunday that had been b- being made for eighteen months and and I think that that's where that's where we are and so that's why I agree, Sarah, whether McCoff pulls it out by two points or three points, this is not a state that should be that close yeah,
0: and I guess I'm curious what changes will actually happen in either of the parties because if Um, As I said, I think, unfortunately, in our politics, somehow um, winning and losing actually affects people's views on campaign strategy, which is sort of bonkers, right? The winning campaign did not do everything right, and the losing campaign did not do everything wrong, as I like to tell um, staffers all the time. Uh, Nevertheless, if Glenn Youngkin wins, what lessons will the Republican 22 candidates, operative class, candidate class Actually, absorb and what will the Democratic Party actually absorb might not make a lot of sense (laughs) Uh, if you were simply looking at numbers, right? Um, So, for instance, to me, Glenn Youngkin, he was endorsed by Trump, yes, but has done everything in his power to Heisman Trump in the meantime while not insulting his voters um, and uh, has run on very specific issues. None of this, like, stop the steal nonsense, et cetera. So will the lesson be, um, don't tie yourself too closely to Trump? Will the lesson be, aha, the Republicans are back and Trump's no problem? Will the lesson be uh, more Trump, you know, if he loses by one point? Oh, if only he had embraced Trump more. And then at the same token, the Democrats, I think, uh, you know, they'll be the, the usual fight. Ah, Terry McAuliffe should have been more moderate. Ah, Terry McAuliffe should have been more progressive. (laughs) Um, So I'm always curious how the accepted wisdom flows down from facts that are not as easy to pigeonhole because people generally like to fit the facts into their previous narrative. But one last question for you, Sarah. Yeah,
2: I, I think what we... The reasonable, the range of reasonable probability seems to be narrow McAuliffe win, narrow Young can win. What happens if McAuliffe wins by a lot? Is that even on the table? Um, I know the polling says no.
0: So I will actually put things in order of likelihood today. Right. So, like, first of all, because Republicans are um, more concentrated on Election Day now and Democrats are more concentrated in early voting, it matters a lot what happens in the last week for the Republican vote, less so for the Democratic vote. So today I'll just tell you what I think the sort of probabilistic outcomes are. Um, I think it is a Terry McAuliffe squeaker win, a Glenn Youngkin squeaker win, a Glenn Youngkin blowout win. And then last probability is a Terry McAuliffe blowout win. Uh, because the direction of the numbers tends to be fairly accurate, what tends not to be accurate is that the poll, of course, is capturing a snapshot from, you know, 72 hours ago or sometimes more. It's a little like seeing light on Venus. Uh, we're actually seeing something that happened quite a while ago. Uh, what, 45 minutes ago? An hour and a half ago? I don't really remember. but. Um, yeah, so I think that that it, it'll it be really interesting, as one person said to me recently, um, I think there's a chance that Glenn Youngkin wins by so much, we wonder how we ever thought Terry McAuliffe had this in the bag. But I think that's less likely than a squeaker on either side, obviously.
2: Right. Well, you just also raised a very interesting issue. When I'm on the Starship, uh, SpaceX Starship to Mars,
0: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> How are we going to control for the lag, the communications lag in the Advisory Opinions podcast?
0: Well, Caleb, he's just going to have to cut out every pause. Yeah, that's producer Caleb. No. No. (laughs) Uh, Well, Commissioner, we're so pleased to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for making the time. I hope we've curried favor with you so that all of our trades may go through. Um, Appreciate uh, appreciate all of y'all. And uh, we'll talk again next week. And next week? We are going to have Virginia results, and you know what, it is a little like my half birthday, although I did not get presents for my half birthday, but if I had, it would be like this Virginia race.